This week on A Lively Experiment, Governor Raimondo warns that Rhode Islanders are not observing limits on social gatherings and rolls out a new tool for reporting it. But is it going too far? And the sands are shifting as school administrators try to figure out how the beginning of the school year will look for their students. We'll hear from the executive director of the state's association of school committees. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on this week's panel, Boston Globe reporter Ed Fitzpatrick, Keith Stokes, Vice President of the 1696 Heritage Group, and Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi. Welcome in, everyone. We appreciate your joining us this weekend. Governor Raimondo sent out a stern word at her weekly briefing on Wednesday. All bars are now going to have to close at 11 o'clock. And she also told visitors coming in from the so-called hotspot states that they're going to have to prove that they are coronavirus free if they want to check into a hotel or rental property. But perhaps the announcement that caught the most attention was she is setting up a hotline with the state police for people to drop a dime if they see anybody violating the social distance gathering rules. Now, the official name of this, Lisa, is the Large Gathering Task Force Hotline. I was doing talk radio this week, and I had some people say they might as well just call it 1-800-RAT-OUT-YOUR-NEIGHBOR. And is this the best use of our police at this time, too, to be able to, you know, to be responding to these telephone calls? So I know what she's trying to do. I understand. And I think perhaps by just putting it out there, she's using it as a deterrent to let people know, to put people on notice that if you're going to have these large parties, we're going to find you either on our own or having your next door neighbor. I, I think it's a. am not sure I would call on my neighbor if that, that was happening, I might want to try to deal with it on my own. Um, we have to wait and see what this happens. But, you know, it's just not a surprise. As we got into this warm weather and people want to come together and they want to gather together, especially after being cooped up in the spring because of COVID, that they want to do this. It's just unfortunate that people are making these decisions that are affecting so many of us in Rhode Island. Yeah, I think a lot of people figure, hey, we had the lockdown and now it's our time to enjoy each other. Um, uh, Ed, you had a great story in this morning's Globe about the problem now with you set the table with Rhode Islanders now trying to go some other states because we're now considered not the hotspot state, but our numbers have gone up a bit. Yeah, the shoe's on the other foot now. We had been stopping uh, cars with New York license plates for a while and telling uh, going door to door down on the border asking New Yorkers uh, to quarantine. So now, uh, um, uh, we're Rhode Islanders are, are being asked to quarantine. And uh, yeah, this one, I had a story about a, a woman from Warwick who was about to head out on Saturday to Dennisport in Cape Cod. Uh, and she had waited. She had said, you know, if, if I wait, there'll be more businesses open. We can get ice cream and pancakes and uh, no such luck. You know, uh, she, she's going to have a staycation instead uh, because she can't head out to Massachusetts. Keith, we were talking before the show. You live down in Newport. You've been down there, and Newport really is the epicenter. Give me a feel for what's going on there this summer as opposed to last, you know, last couple of summers. Well, it's busy, and it's particularly busy in the weekends, and the restaurants and the downtown activities are, are very crowded with people. And 
as I've said before, my concern is, is that um, this is a pandemic that we haven't seen in a worldwide health crisis, possibly since the Spanish flu of 100 years ago. Um, so anything that we do is an inconvenience, but this inconvenience might save a life. So I think it's absolutely essential that what the governor is doing may not be popular, but it might be necessary in the short term for having a long-term uh, resolution of this health crisis. What about compliance down there? What do you see as you go around masks, gatherings, that type of thing? I think the younger people, for the most part, I've seen a lot of people holding masks in their hands or it's pulled down uh, with their nose exposed. And then when they get to a restaurant or a hotel or a place, they pull it up uh, and that's inappropriate. I mean, the bottom line is, is that the purpose of the mask is to stifle the spread of this virus if someone happens to have the virus. And the fact that so many of us have not been tested yet are not consistently tested, any one of us could be spreading this virus. So I think it's, again, what people are calling an inconvenience, I think is an absolute necessary health precaution. Lisa, I wonder what the governor, look, the governor comes out, she's stern at these briefings. There's only so much you can do. And I wonder, you. there's that balance between trying to be stern, but also realizing that, you know, you can only say so much. I, I think of Governor Almond, you know, dealing with the, with the de, uh, Democratic legislature and there are always budget battles. You got to know when to use the bully pulpit. And so I wonder, with your strategist hat on, the political aspect of this, trying to deal with the pandemic, how you think she's been doing navigating that. And, you know, I think women start off on a, on a you know, we come off more like a mother sometimes when we when we speak it rather than having, you know, the 610 Governor Ahmed standing there with his deep voice and saying, you know, he can say, knock it off, you know, and then, you know, here's this diminutive woman saying it. And it's a little bit different, you know, how, how it gets um, perceived. I think what's happening here, you pay attention to the um, governor when you go to her press briefings. Ed, Keith, we pay attention. The people who should be pay attention to her, they're not listening, they're not tuning in, they're not watching the news, they're out, they're partying, they're having fun with their friends. So the message she's trying to get through to us, through the media, through her social media, it's touching the people who are already paying, playing by the rules. The people who are not, they're not paying attention to it and they don't care. Ed, as you watch the briefings, what goes through your mind about how the governor's handling these things? Yeah, I mean, she said knock it off. Uh, uh, as many times as she can. And now I think you see she's go trying to use other levers besides the bully pulpit, which, which she's made effective use of, I think. Uh, but now, you know, she's, she's uh, really fed up with the bars. She, she's put a limit of 11 o'clock on, on bar areas and restaurants. She's definitely uh, lost patience with people in their 20s who are blowing off the uh, mask requirements and giving people a hard time at ice cream parlors down at the beach and things like that. Uh, and you see her also yesterday announcing uh, how she's going to do serology tests to try to get a better handle on how prevalent uh, the virus is with people in from 20 to 30 because they may not be displaying symptoms, but she wants to get a, a, her mind around how, how many people might have it and might be spreading it asymptomatically. Keith, what's your thought for the long run here? Just last word on this before we move on. I mean, I hear what you say. It's a pandemic. Some people kind of view it as an inconvenience. I mean, we're, this is with us for a while in your mind? Well, I think we have to prepare for the new normal. Um, that new normal might mean that uh, embracing density, um, very urban, dense, compact places of work, places of living and recreation might change. It might change for a very long time. And I think Rhode Island being such a small state and a scalable state, 
this might be an opportunity for us to kind of take advantage of things that we can do and we can test out now that would prepare us for a better place to live and work uh, in the near future. All right. Six weeks ago, the governor was very confident that uh, students would be returning to class in the fall each week. That uh, confidence, I think, is eroded a little bit. She said she's following the science. It's interesting. At the Daily Briefing yesterday, she talked that all but three communities, and those are the urban uh, uh, Providence and Pawtucket and Central Falls, would be able to go back. Whether they will or not or use a hybrid remains to be seen. I had a chance to sit down this week with Tim Duffy. You may know him a long time. Uh, he's the executive director of the Rhode Island Association of School Committees. So you can imagine the, the uh, kind of the gamut of uh, represent, uh, school committees that he's representing. I had a chance to ask him what it's going to take between now and August 31st the projected date. He said there are basically three challenges for reopening in Rhode Island. Here's what they are. Transportation is probably one of the bigger ones. Uh, Ride has just issued a memo uh, making available uh, RIPTA consultants, uh, National Guard consultants, uh, about busing and transportation. The other issue, and we're witnessing this nationwide, is the lag time and testing. If that test doesn't come back for 10 days to two weeks, you're going to have people opting out of the system, coming back into the system. And I think the third thing that we're going to be looking at is acquiring protective equipment. And that includes masks, that includes shields, that includes uh, foggers that desanitize the surfaces of desks. You know, we're competing now with every other school district and college and university in the country to acquire that. So, I mean, the availability of that may become tight as we get closer to the start of the school year. One thing the pandemic has pointed out is that there is a great deal of disparity uh, in education, and not only in our, our state, but virtually every state in the, in the nation. So how we allocate resources is going to be critical going forward to guarantee that if we're going to do virtual learning or a blend of virtual and in-person learning, that that all of the students have access to the technology and, and the instruction that they need. The governor at her briefing last week said that uh, they're hoping to aim for August 17th, August 18th to make the decision for the 31st. I know Bob Walsh, who was a panelist on this show, I heard him uh, quoted as saying he thinks that they should push off the whole school year to begin with to give them a little more time. No problem going into September. They can make up the days on the backside. Ed, let me begin with uh, you as the parent of two high school, well, two, one in eighth grade and one going into 12th grade. I'm sure you guys are paying attention to this. Give me a feel for how it went last spring and how your boys are feeling going into this fall with the potential that they might be at the dining room table as opposed to in their class. Yeah, I mean, the school year is coming up very soon, so I think everybody is focused on this and eager to get some definitive answers on it. It's it's kind of hard because, as you can see, the situation changes. We've got different restrictions uh, today than we did yesterday. Um, but, you know, I, th I thought the big obstacle, the biggest obstacle to getting back to school was the testing. I mean, I I've done stories about how it was taking more than a week or 10 days or 14 days to, to get your test results back. And there was no way I thought you could open the schools and wait two weeks to see if a kid had or a teacher had had uh, contracted the virus. Uh, so yesterday, I was very interested to hear the governor say that they had contracted with two, uh, signed contracts with two testing laboratories that would uh, guarantee an average of 48 hours turnaround for test results. So I think that makes it a lot more doable. So the governor's definitely focused on getting as many kids 
back to school. She sees that as the best option. But I've also done stories about uh, the city of Central Falls and how that's just not a hot spot in Rhode Island. That's one of the hottest spots for the virus in the Northeast, in the country, along uh, with Chelsea, Mass, and Brooklyn, uh, and the Bronx, I mean. So it's, you know, uh, it's a, as the mayor, as Mayor Diosa said, you know, uh, being in a hot spot, he looks at the world differently. And uh, the rate there uh, is uh, 185, I believe, per 100,000 uh, over the past seven days. So, uh, you know, as the governor said yesterday, with a rate that high, you would not be able to send students back in Central Falls, Pawtucket, and Providence is just over that border and they're hoping to get them under. So yeah, for my kids, we're very focused on uh, what happens with Providence and whether they can get under uh, that threshold of 100 cases per 100,000. Yeah, you know, and another issue that hasn't really, well, it's been addressed, but it didn't come out right now, is the parents going back to work. And there's such uncertainty right now, you know, we're waiting to hear, you know, town by town. When I think about the state of Rhode Island, there are counties in Virginia that are the size of, of Rhode Island, and then they would have one, you know, one plan for the whole county. Here in Rhode Island, we have, you know, 39 cities and towns, and every town gets to have their own plan. Uh, when, you know, we talked earlier about behavior, too. I know as an adult, I have a hard time wearing a mask for a period of time. I find it very uncomfortable, very difficult. We are asking five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds to wear a mask for the whole time that they're in. I, you know, right now, I know we're trying to be optimistic. I know it's the best. It's optimal to bring the children back to school for their learning, for their emotional and, and, and um, uh, well-being. But how spreadable this disease is, how children love to come together, how much they're probably wanting to take their mask off. I don't see us being able to sustain having school throughout this whole year in person. Uh, to me, it's pretty clear. Any policy going forward has to start with the safety of the students and the educators. Uh, that is paramount. Um, I had the opportunity this summer to work with about 50 high school students with a distance learning program on offshore wind. And we were meeting um, four or five times a week, several hours a day. And I was um, struck by how engaged these students were, uh, how prepared they were, the level of interchange. It's not like a face-to-face -face meeting or a physical personal experience, uh, but it worked. Um, so I think going forward, there's two factors we need to recognize. One, um, if we're going to expand uh, experiential learning, we have to make sure that every student in public schools and K-12 and families have the technology and the communication equipment to be able to participate uh, consistently and successfully. The second point, which Ed raised, is, is that these hotspots are not only in urban areas, they're particularly profound within Latino and African-American populations within urban areas. So um, I will do nothing or support anything that places those populations, our entire populations and students and teachers at risk. If it means taking a pause uh, and being creative and continuing a virtual experience, then so be it. But it's the safety and the health of the people of Rhode Island that is paramount. But isn't that some of the problem, Keith, that particularly in Providence, we heard anecdotally the governor was saying, oh, that the distance learning has been, a, 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 you know, an overwhelming success. Then you hear these stories coming out of Providence and some of the urban areas. Some kids don't have Internet. The, you know, the, the whole family dynamic is a, a little off. And I'm not saying that happens just there. But if you don't, if you can't even get on the Internet to learn, then then you're stopped in your tracks. And I'm not saying that's a reason to go back, but it seems like they're not having the tools also to be able to do the virtual learning. And we really need to concentrate on that. And I absolutely agree, uh, Jim. We have to concentrate on building. Again, 
as we make these investments in technology and particularly virtual learning technology, that's going to stay with the student, that's going to stay with the system for a very long time. So to me, it's a, it's a good investment and a long-term investment strategy. Ed, your point about the testing, I thought that was the silver lining yesterday from the governor. She understands, remember they wiped out the rapid testing at, at Twin River, that I've heard that, you know, seven, 10 days, the guaranteed 48-hour turnaround, that's huge, isn't it? That, that is huge. I, I was surprised uh, that she could ramp it up that quickly because she's talking about, what, 7,000 uh, tests a day uh, pretty soon before the start of the school year. So, yeah, that's a game changer, I think, because if you don't know, if you are waiting to hear for two, a week or two to uh, a test, that, that's a lot of spread, a lot of community spread uh, that you're allowing. And there's no way to go back to school. I do think there are going to be a good number of families who are just not comfortable. And you heard the governor uh, saying anybody who's not uh, able to go back won't have to go back. You, there will be a virtual learning academy where you'll be able to get that uh, uh, remote access to. And that's a change from five weeks ago. Yeah. Five, six weeks ago, she was like, we're, we're going back. Yeah, I think they must have heard from the community that that was not just, just saying everybody's going to go back. It's not going to work especially in places like Central Falls, Pawtucket. You know, I've been talking to Dr. Fine out there and, you know, the, the numbers, he, they've seen the numbers going up again uh, during the summer after having it pretty much under control. And, that, and that's very concerning. So, and you don't want it, as Keith pointed out, you don't want it to, this pandemic's exacerbated a lot of the inequities that were already in society. You don't want it to uh, increase that anymore. Lisa, you want the last word? Well, I'm going to go into the fall with my fingers crossed, but I think, you know, I, I, I tend to be optimistic, but I just feel that we know that there's a second wave of COVID. There's a second wave of the flu that we can anticipate too. And I just feel like everything is just going to come together and we really have to be prepared probably going into next year for our students to be home, our parents to be home with our students. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's quite a juggle. Uh, I've often said, that I'm glad our twins are not in third or fourth grade or fifth grade because they lost me doing the math in third grade. I'm not sure I would be any help. But, uh, yeah, it's a, I, I really feel for people with young kids trying to do their jobs. All right, we will have much more next week as we get closer to the deadline. All right, the issue of the uh, Rhode Island changing its name, dropping the Providence Plantations portion of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations is up once again. It's been discussed at the State House. Um, and you will likely be able to decide on that this fall. Keith, I was reading the article and I totally forgotten that many years ago, you and your daughters went up and you testified against dropping the name, but not for the reasons you might think. So tell me about that and tell me about your thoughts about where we are in 2020. Well, where we are in 2020 is, is that if it goes to the voters a referendum question, then voters should uh, make that decision and then we should stand by that decision. Uh, from my personal perspective and what I've said consistently, you know, a challenge facing African heritage people in Rhode Island and across America is not only overt racism, it's invisibility. And far too much of our American history is taught and memorialized through this almost owner class viewpoint. And as Confederate statues that celebrate, you know, those that were involved in racial oppression, uh, that's not the history America growing majority will tolerate any longer. But my concern is, is that Rather than simply taking statues down or removing state names, this is an opportunity for us to advance African heritage history and particularly public schools and reclaim public spaces, historic sites that represent all the people. So my interest and focus has been much more transformative activity than cosmetic activity. And 
I just believe Rhode Island has an opportunity to lead the nation in how we tell the inclusive history of all Americans, but it's through advancing public education. So I've been very much engaged for 20 years now, and particularly over the last several years, in building a K-12 African-American heritage history program within our schools. Once that's in place, from elementary to high school, these students, um, our young people, will have access to this history. And then going forward, I think they're going to have a better sense of Rhode Island's history, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, you can't see history in black and white. It's always shades of gray. What was the reaction of the legislators when Keith Stokes, well-known African-American, you know all about the history, came up 20 years ago and said, you know what, I don't think you should drop Providence Plantations because that's just a token move. What was the look on their face when you said that? Well, I didn't say it was a token move. I just said there are other things we could be doing, such as enhancing black history, uh, empowering more black political involvement. Uh, there were a variety of things that I suggested. I don't think any one was implemented. But my point is, is that uh, if we remove the name, uh, how does that improve the state of people of color in this in this great state? Does it improve our health equity? Uh, does it deal with criminal justice reform? Uh, does it support economic development and wealth maintenance and wealth building? No. So my point is, is that there are some very tangible, targeted, strategic public investments that can be made to move the needle in a very positive fashion for not only people of color, but for all people within the state. You know, there's been such an enormous amount of effort behind this. You know, Keith, I was thinking about your daughter when I was reading the article and agreeing with her that I think of all the time, energy, you know, that has been spent on just trying to change the name of our state, you know, starting from 1975 and all the time since then. This year, very well, it could very well happen. It could be that it's the time and people will go to the ballot and they'll vote and they'll say yes. But then what's next? You know, after you achieved this victory of finally, after all these years, all these decades of getting the name off, how do you bring a group together? So what's next on, on, the, on the agenda? Who's going to be the leader of what's next to go forward? I, I, and I'll say, I mean, thank you, Lisa. I mean, I, I fault the media sometimes because I think you tend to focus on the sensational uh, versus the strategic. And there are activities along the way in Rhode Island where we're working on issues such as increasing public uh, policies around the areas of education, economic development. Um, but that doesn't get the front page of a paper and that doesn't get um, the top of the news. And unfortunately, it's sensational that attracts people and gets people's attention. And I'm just suggesting that while the plantation name may or may not stay, that's not the issue. The issue is, is how do we create an equitable and fair state for all residents? I, I do think the political climate has changed since this came up to a vote last time in Rhode Island. And uh, the changing of uh, the name of the state went down by a three to one ratio. I think you'll see a, a much different result this time. I, I think it's much more uh, front and center and I, I think people see it as a, a powerful symbol. But I, I, I agree with Keith's uh, point that it's, it's not sufficient in and of itself. You have to do more. And I interviewed him for a story about a month ago where he talked about, you know, you have to have, not, not just naming and shaming, not just subtraction, but what do you add to the community? And he talked about recognizing uh, uh, African-American leaders in Rhode Island history, such as his own ancestor, the Reverend Van Horn. And, uh, and also, um, you know, uh, he talked about uh, his, teaching history, uh, doing a better job of teaching history to students in, in Rhode Island. And, and other leaders have talked about the need to do to diversify the bench, the uh, police departments. Uh, you know, we have a, one of the important choices 
before the governor right now is whether to appoint the first person of color to the high court, to the Rhode Island Supreme Court. Um, so yeah, we have substantive changes in front of us. There's legislation uh, 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 about the law enforcement uh, bill of rights before the uh, legislature now. So there, there are some uh, there are some weighty matters before uh, the assembly now. All right. To be continued. Uh, I may get back to that, but I don't want to short you guys on outrages. Lisa, what do you have this week? Outrage or kudo or both? Um, actually, an outrage. And, you know, this happened last Friday. I think we all, you know, watching the news last Friday to see the decision by the first um, circuit court of appeals out of Boston, throwing out the um, death penalty um, uh, against the um, Boston Marathon bomber, Yokar Zunaryev. I know when I first read it, I was just, I couldn't believe it, you know, that this happened. And of course, you know, better understanding now, you know, why the court did what it did and what it means. My outrage is that it is just opening up such a deep wound that we've had since the bombing happened seven years ago. And here we go again. And I know there are many different views on the death penalty, but if there was ever a case to put forward for the death penalty, to have these two people come forward premeditated doing this cold bloody murder including of an eight-year-old it was very deserving of the death penalty so now we have to let our justice system move forward and figure out what's next okay keith what do you have this week oh my outrage has been an ongoing outrage in living in newport a major uh tourism town uh far too many people uh not managing social distancing far too many people not wearing masks or appropriately wearing the mask um, this is a historic pandemic, and every single one of us has a responsibility to maintain not only our own health, but the health of people that we interact with. So um, I give kudos to the governor. Uh, it's a design-build process, and I think she's doing the best she can. I think she's being as creative as she can, and I think we need to stand behind her and support her during these very difficult times. Okay, Ed, what do you have? I was surprised to hear that the U.S. Census Bureau planned to stop uh, going door to door trying to get the full count on, sept uh, on sept the end of September instead of the end of October. It doesn't seem like, given the pandemic, uh, you would want to keep counting as long as you could. You wouldn't cut, a short, cut it short by a month. And by the, the, the Bureau's own figures say that we've, they've only counted 63% of the, the people. There's a lot. Uh, more people to count and that we only do it once every 10 years it's billions of dollars at stake representation here in rhode island i think they should keep going keith we just have a minute and a half left i wanted to go back and ask you just as a follow-up to our previous discussion with all the protests going on downtown and across the nation you know the question is and you raised it what's next lisa said that i wonder what your thought is does it translate to the ballot box? Does it translate to more than just getting together with people? And is that your concern going forward? How you harness this energy and where it goes? Just about a minute left. Uh, from my perspective, I look at it at the national level, the debate on who uh, Biden might select potentially an African-American woman as a vice president. But I, I think what people are losing in that discussion is it's, it's not about selecting the vice president, but it's an acknowledgement of the many years of support that the African-American community is giving to the Democratic Party. Uh, and while today's Republican Party has made probably little or no policy or political headway in securing black votes, the Democratic Party sometimes takes black votes for granted. So I think this is an opportunity for the party leaders uh, to interact with the community at the community level, meaning working with community-based mayors, council members, other elected officials, and really trying to understand what are the priorities within these communities, and particularly the African-American community. Um, 
that's an opportunity to be sustainable. But I will tell you, as I talk to African-American political and policy and business leaders across the country, the one thing that I'm hearing as a consistent theme is, is that we're not gonna allow any party to take our votes for granted anymore. Okay, great. Thank you so much, guys. A great panel, way too short. Wish we had 60 minutes. Keith, welcome back after a uh, lively hiatus. Good to have you back. Thank you. And uh, Lisa and Ed, we hope to have you back real soon. Folks, uh, we hope you have a great week. Things are developing very quickly. Hope you can join us back here next week as a lively experiment continues. Have a great week. experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders I'm John Hazen White jr. and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS